Luke 5. Last week, David Scott uh, looked at the first 11 chapter, or first 11 verses of Luke 5. Uh, Peter, the calling of the first disciples, he focused particularly on Peter, and this idea of pressing through the cant in order to engage with Jesus on a deeper level. That calling of the disciples is actually a bit of an interlude in this entire section of chapter 4 through chapter 5, is really about Jesus' understanding of his mission and then him fulfilling that. So Luke says at the beginning of chapter 4, this is verses 18 and 19, this is Jesus' job description. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's Jesus talking. Because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the rest of Luke 4 and 5 is really Jesus doing that. It's Luke saying, and here's how he did all of those things that he said he would do. Here's how he proclaims good news to the poor. We've seen him preaching, and here's how he sets people free. We've seen him Set free someone who was oppressed by a demon. We've seen him set free someone who has a fever. And we'll see today him set free someone who's a leper and someone else who's a paralytic. So we're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 5. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when this man saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and Jesus charged the man to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about Jesus went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear Jesus and to be healed of their infirmities, and he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So real quick, background for this story is Leviticus 13 and 14. You can go read that if you want. Uh, the summary is if someone has a, had a skin disease, so if they had leprosy, that don't think of that strictly in terms of what you're thinking of with leprosy. It's a broader term for any skin disease. They were considered unclean. And uncleanness, if I can make up that word, was considered to be contagious. So if someone had a skin disease, they were ostracized. They were pushed out of the community until they were not symptomatic any longer. Once there was no evidence, I think it was a week Without a skin disease, then they would be, maybe actually have been longer than that. Then they were welcomed back into the community. But there's this sense, skin disease equals unclean. Unclean is contagious. Therefore, if you have skin disease, we're going to push you outside of the community. And so that had been this guy's life. He had lived ostracized for however long he had had this Condition, a very bold move for him to approach Jesus in a city. That's a big no-no. He's breaking the law. By coming and approaching Jesus because he's supposed to stay outside. And actually, guys that had a condition like his, they had to yell, unclean, unclean. If anyone got around them so that person would know, stay away from me. If you can imagine that being your existence, that was the existence for this guy. And he kind of broke through all of that in order to get in front of Jesus. And you see him say, he says very clearly, Jesus, you can heal me. I know you can do that. I just don't know if you will. And for many of you, that might be where you're sitting this morning. Your issue is not can, it's will. That's kind of a different set of questions that we can talk about, but you may can relate to this guy. Jesus, I have every confidence that you're strong enough to work in blank situation. I just don't know if you're willing to work in this situation. And Jesus responds to this guy and says, yes, I'm willing. Immediately the guy is cleansed. Jesus sends him back to the priest 
because only the priest could readmit him into the community. So he goes through the proper channels so this guy can be uh, reintegrated into community life. That last verse, but he would withdraw, that's Jesus, to desolate places and pray. Several times in Luke, Luke makes a point to say Jesus broke off from everybody to pray. And the tense of those verbs is this was something he did regularly. He regularly withdrew in order to pray. The takeaway for us on that is pretty clear. If Jesus, being the Son of God, needed to break away and spend time with the Father, how much more so do we? So no, no guilt here. I don't want you feeling that at all. Lent is six weeks, and I would encourage you during this six weeks to really think about what would it look like for you to develop a rhythm of prayer. I think you're setting yourself up to fail. If right now, if you would say, I don't, prayer is not really a part of my life, you're setting yourself up to fail. If you say, I'm going to pray seven days a week for the next six weeks, you're not going to. You're going to blow it, and then you're going to feel bad, and you're going to quit, and nothing good comes from that. Let me encourage you to do this. I want you to pick, take three days a week, and I want you to, quote, withdraw to a lonely place. That doesn't mean that you have to go sit in in a dark room or a closet. What it means is I want prayer for you to be a primary activity during that time for three to five minutes. Some of you would say, I pray while I drive. I walk to work. And when you're driving, I want you to drive. I don't want you to pray. (laughs) Dangerous for me. I pray in the shower. That's great. I want you to have some time where prayer is your primary focus. I, I walk, and when I walk, I pray. I'm not saying you've got to sit in a room. I'm just saying that prayer. you're not multitasking. How about that? I don't want you multitasking prayer for three to five minutes a day for three times a week for the next six. And see if that doesn't begin to develop some type of a rhythm in your life. Psychologists say it takes six weeks to make a habit. And maybe at the end of this six weeks, which is Easter, you'll have developed some rhythm when it comes to prayer. What do I pray about? You may say, God already knows everything. Prayer is not about informing God about things he doesn't know about. It's inviting God. To get involved in your life. And that's what we want you to do during this time. So here are just some, a few suggestions. You can work off that Lent devotional guide David Scott mentioned earlier. That'll, there's a blog about that. You can get to it through Facebook or our website. And every day someone from the church is going to write a little devotion and it will be a prayer point. You can pray about that. You can pray through your primary relationships. Whoever those people are. You can pray through your day. Just pull out your calendar. Look on your phone. These are the things I've got going on and just work through those. You can pray through the read the newspaper and pray about the things that you see in there that are stirring your heart. What I want to encourage you to do is just to begin the practice of praying regularly outside of a corporate environment. What we do here is incredibly important. Hebrews 10 says don't give up meeting together. So it's not about it's not better or worse. It's both. And we need the corporate body piece which is what we do on Sunday mornings and what you do in your small groups. And there also needs to be a personal component to your life with the Lord, and that's this withdrawing. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Again, I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you just to begin to develop that rhythm. Verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So this is the first we see of the Pharisees in Luke. The Pharisees were the most uh, influential and the most popular religious leaders of their day. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. That's an interesting statement. 
And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring this friend in and lay this friend before Jesus. But finding no way to bring this guy in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let this guy down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, there's another interesting phrase. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So many of you are familiar with this story. In Mark's gospel, you can see a little bit more of the background. Jesus had been in Capernaum, and he'd worked a lot of miracles, and then he left. And then he comes back. And so what I'm thinking is this guy and his friends, they don't get to Jesus the first time. And he leaves, and they're going, oh, did we miss our chance? He, was, he actually could have helped you. There's no hope for someone who's paralyzed. And they're going, this guy could have helped, and we didn't get you there. He didn't, he didn't come down the street where you were living. We messed up. And then they hear that he's back. And so they're going to anything necessary, any means necessary, they're going to get their friend in front of Jesus. And so they find out where he is and they go to this person's house. And it's full of people because Jesus is teaching there. All houses have an exterior staircase. You go up the exterior staircase. They cut a hole in the roof. And somehow they lower him down on a cot. Whether a couple of guys jump down and they pass him through. They Use pulleys. I don't know what they do, but they get this guy in front of Jesus. And you've got the religious leaders there. First time we've seen them over the next few stories, we'll see controversy surrounding Jesus is on the increase. This is the first week, first hint we see that he's coming into opposition with the religious leaders. And Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven. And this guy's probably going, that's not my issue. I didn't come because I wanted my sins to be forgiven. I came because I can't walk. There's a connection that you'll see throughout the Bible. God does not make this connection, but you see it in the Bible. There's a connection between people's physical condition and their spiritual condition. So there's an assumption that you'll see that kind of runs throughout the Bible. People who are doing well, who are rich, it's because they're righteous and God has blessed them. People are poor, they're, doing, they're not doing well, it's because God is judging them. Same thing with illness. If you have a condition, particularly something like paralysis, leprosy, blindness, those types of things, assumption, is, is rooted or a result of sin in your life or in the life of your parents. Jesus never makes that connection. He actually breaks it. You can read John 9 where he says about a man born blind, neither him nor his parents sinned. He's breaking that connection. God never affirms it in the Old or the New Testament, but again, it's just... It seems to be a common way of viewing the world. And so when Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven, he's addressing both his spiritual and his physical condition from the perspective of the people who are in the house. And so the Pharisees say, you can't do that. You can't forgive sins. That's blasphemy. You're demeaning. You're insulting God. You're saying something that only God can say. Only God can forgive sins. And they're 100% correct. 
They're right. It is blasphemy unless Jesus is God because only God can forgive sins. If you see sin, if you sin against me, if that's you incurring a debt. So if Scott punches me in the face, if he sins against me in that way, say that means he owes me $50. That's the, that's the price for punching me in the face. Maybe a good deal for you. And so he does that. So he punches me, and so I'm like, you owe me 50 bucks. Thatcher can't forgive Scott on my behalf. Thatcher can't say to Scott, you owe David $50, don't worry about it, it's forgiven. He doesn't have a place to do that. It's not his place to forgive a sin that was committed against me. He doesn't have standing. He doesn't have the authority. He doesn't have the right. And that's what the Pharisees are saying. Ultimately, every sin is against God. People are are piling up debt, if you like that picture, towards God. And who are you to cancel it? You can't do that. And they're, again, 100% correct, unless Jesus is God as well. And so what he says is, well, what's easier? Is it easier for me to tell this guy he's forgiven, or is it easier for me to tell this guy to get up? We know the answer is much easier to tell the guy he's forgiven, because nobody knows. You tell the guy to get up, and he doesn't, it's obvious to everyone. And then Jesus says, but I want you all to know that I've got authority to forgive sins. So get up. He's, again, kind of thinking with them. They're making a connection between physical and spiritual condition. And so Jesus is playing along with that. And so he says to this guy, get up. And when you get up, that's it. that indicates that your sins have been forgiven as well. That validates my authority to forgive your sins. And the people are blown away. They've never seen anybody do anything like that. They've never heard anybody talk like that. And again, we'll see how the Pharisees respond Moving forward next week. As I was thinking about this passage, one of the phrases that jumped out was their faith. Very interesting to me. Often in the Gospels, we see Jesus responding to the faith of someone who approaches him. And then he, he responds based on their faith. And oftentimes we see, almost every time actually, we see people are healed. And he says, your faith has made you well, something along those lines. This time we see plural, their faith. I think Jesus is referring to the faith of the friends. That's one of the reasons that we encourage you all to raise your hand sometimes for prayer. It's one of the reasons we ask you to come forward at the end of the service. There's something here where Jesus can respond to the faith of friends. Their faith is demonstrated by the fact that they go through all this trouble to get to get their friend in front of Jesus. They drag him there on a cot. They break into somebody's house through the roof. They kind of make a scene in order to get their friend in front of Jesus. That's their faith, and it's evidence that's demonstrated by their actions. And for some, there are times where you know there's a need in your life. You know there's an area where you need to see the Lord work, but you just, you don't have it. You don't have the, the, it's just not happening for you internally. Like you may say, I don't have the faith to believe God for that. I've been disappointed time and time again. I know he can, but I don't know if he will. Those are the times when you need us. You need the body. And so we ask you, let us know, raise your hand, come forward, say something in your small group, not to embarrass you, not to humiliate you, not so you're airing your dirty laundry, but to give us, as your brothers and sisters, the opportunity to do what these guys did, to put you on the stretcher. And get you in front of Jesus. And it'll be flipped. There'll be a time where you do that for me. 
But there are times where I need to do that for you. There are times in your small group where you're like, I don't want to be the one who raises their hand again. Do it. Give your group the privilege of getting you in front of the Lord. And there'll be a time where it's flipped. And you'll get to do that for someone else. That's part of what it means to be in the body. That's why in Hebrews it says, don't give up. Uh, meeting together. We need one another. We're not all strong and we're not all weak at the same time. And I just I want to encourage you with that from Scripture. There's something to be said for their faith. Jesus responding to the faith of people who are bringing you to him. Even if you would say, I can't trust you on my own with this. Again, that idea, I know you can. I just don't know if you will. Some of you, that's where you are this morning. You don't know if he will. Let us pray with you about that. We'll we'll close with this, this idea of power and authority. You've seen a picture like this before. Power is ability to do something. Authority is the right to do something. And in this passage, Jesus has both. We see words that describe power. Immediately, the leprosy leaves. Immediately, the guy gets up. And goes home. The, the leper says, I know you've got the ability to do this. I just don't know if you will. And we also see ideas of authority, particularly in that second uh, miracle. Who has the authority to forgive sins? The, I do. I've got the authority to forgive these people of their sins. I've got the right. Let's see that next. Power without authority. It's like a militia. They've got guns. But they don't have the right to do anything. Authority without power is a mall cop. If that's you, I'm sorry. I'm not demeaning your profession. But it's the truth. Those guys, they don't. They have the right to police an area. They don't necessarily have the ability or the power to do so. And Jesus combines both of those, power and authority. And as his co-heirs, we have, both of the, we have access to both of those things as well, both authority and power. We'll look at authority briefly, and then we'll close by looking at this idea of power. This is Daniel 7. When Jesus says, Son of Man, he calls himself that. Who, and they say, who is this? And he says what? He says, but you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's referring to this passage in Daniel 7. He's speaking to the Pharisees, many of whom would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. Think about that. So they would have known this is what Jesus is referring to. This is Daniel talking. In a vision I looked, there before me was one like a son of man. That's Jesus' favorite self-designation. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days. That's God and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign powers. All people, nations and men of every language worshipped him. So when Jesus says the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he's referencing this. He's saying, I'm that guy, and I have authority to forgive sins because God gave it to me. That's why I have the authority to give sins. It's been delegated to me by God. And we know, because he's the Son of God, it's a very, that's a unique relationship. The only begotten Son of God, that authority is given to him as the Son. And he's saying, based on that, I can then Forgive sins. The good news for us is that Jesus delegates his authority to us as well. You see, with the twelve, he called the twelve together. Those are the twelve apostles. And he gave them power and authority. To the seventy-two, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. You want to know where snake handlers come from? Somewhere in there. 
We don't do that here. But if we did, that's the verse that we would use. (laughs) He gives them authority. And he gives us that authority as well. The issue for most of us is that we we don't live in that. We don't live like we're adopted sons and daughters. We don't live like our dad is the king. We live like servants. We live like second-class citizens who have to sit outside, back-of-the-bus kind of people. Authority is not about arrogance. It's not about strutting and preening. It's not about throwing your weight around. But there's a deep confidence that says, I know who I am. And I have authority not because of any righteousness in me. I have authority because I've been adopted into the family of God. And he says, he's given me authority. So fear is not the boss of me. And anxiety is not the boss of me. And greed is not the boss of me. And lust is not the boss of me. Nothing that the enemy can throw at me is the boss of me. I have authority over all of those things. Again, not because I'm righteous, not because I pray a lot, not because we're fasting during Lent, not because I haven't sinned in the last 24 or 48 hours. I have authority because I'm an adopted son or an adopted daughter of God. Many of us don't live up to that level. And because we don't recognize our authority, we never even get to the point of accessing our power. We don't even get there. Accessing the power that's available to us through the Holy Spirit because we don't live like adopted sons and daughters. We live, honestly, like stepchildren in a lot of ways. Wondering, what's my place? What's my role? Will he? I know he can, but will he? And I want to say you don't have to live like that any longer. This idea of power you see in these verses as well. This is Ephesians 1. In Jesus... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of that inheritance, to the praise of his glory. I couldn't think of a better phrase, so I went with indwelling presence of the Spirit. That sounds like something from the 1800s. That's the best I could come up with. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. That's what this verse says. So every Christian is like that picture. There's this reservoir of the Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit is a person. You don't get more or less of him. You get all of him or none of him. And so when you say yes to Jesus, when you confess your sins, repent of your sins, and put your faith and trust in him, then the Holy Spirit comes and and indwells you. He lives within you. You can read Romans. It's the Holy Spirit who allows us or enables us to say to God, you're my father. It's the Holy Spirit who confirms that we are his children. The Holy Spirit makes us a new creation. That's 2 Corinthians. All of that work is done. The saving is done by the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian this morning, then that, at a minimum, that's what you look like. The Holy Spirit somehow in his infinitude lives in your finite heart and in my finite heart. I don't know how that works. I just know that it's true. Unfortunately, for many of us, we stay here. We're the, we've got all of this water, and it's dammed up. Let's see the next slide, please, Mark. Acts 4.31, when they, those are Christians, when believers had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll see that phrase often in Acts. Filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then Paul in Ephesians 5, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul in Ephesians 1 says the Holy Spirit is already living within you. And then in 5 he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't forget what he wrote. It's just a couple of pages later. It's a different reality. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. It's that reservoir. And then, as a Christian, the encouragement from the Lord is to ask to be filled. That's this over here. It's that picture on the right where the water of the Spirit, if you like that picture, is released in you. You move from being a dammed up river to be, or a dammed up lake, however you want to say that. You move, shift, being someone where the Spirit is moving through you. We said a couple of weeks ago, when you think about this idea of being filled, don't think about getting more of the Holy Spirit. Think about your thoughts and your words and your actions coming more and more and more under his influence. The, the contrast is between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. When you're drunk, it doesn't mean every cell of your body is saturated with alcohol. It means your thoughts and your words and your actions are under the influence of alcohol. And the same thing is true of being filled with the Spirit. It's talking about your thoughts. Paul's talking about your thoughts and your words and your actions become, coming under the influence more and more of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled. For Jesus, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. He was living out of that right side picture. We said when we first started looking at Luke, Jesus did what he did because he was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Right side picture. He didn't do what he did because he was the son of God. Not helpful for us. If Jesus heals people, if Jesus invests in people, if he serves people and blesses people, if Jesus preaches and teaches because he's the son of God, that we're not in the same way that he is. We're not divine. At the, the most he can be for us at that point is inspirational. But he's so much more than that for us. He's an example. And so... That says to me, and I think Luke bends over backwards to let us know, Jesus did what he did as a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He lived that right side picture, and so can you. One of the biggest mistakes, it's not a mistake, one of the biggest misconceptions I had as a Christian, there's a three or four year period of time where I thought to move from the left side picture to the right side picture, there would be some kind of, I was, I was waiting for something, I, I would cry or I would have some emotional response or some physical response like He-Man where I would lift up my sword and I would feel myself getting bigger. I felt, I thought, there's got to be something to this. People talk about rivers. Well, I don't feel like there's any river in me. And so for three or four years, I had this wrestling match. When I was probably 21 to 25. I was just fighting with God all the time, fighting with him. Because I was saying, I'm asking to be filled and I don't feel any different. I'm asking to be filled and I don't sense any difference. And so I was constantly frustrated. For you, you're probably like, you spent four years worrying about that. But I did, four years. I'm wrestling with him about this in multiple different scenarios and situations. I was not at peace. I had no peace in my heart at all towards the Lord. Because I felt like you're keeping something from me. Or I'm, not, I'm doing something wrong. Something is keeping me on the left side and not the right side. And I don't know what it is. And actually it was Tom Tanner one time. He said, listen, you've got to drop this. You just need to live 
like the prayer has already been answered. That's what Jesus says very clearly in Luke and in Matthew. You've got a good father. He gives good gifts. You don't have to go begging and pleading and bending up. Just ask and then live like that prayer has been answered. And that's all it took. That simple statement for me changed everything. And so I began to live like that prayer was already had been answered. And the truth is, it had already been answered. I just didn't have any feelings associated with it. I didn't get bigger like He-Man. Like nothing happened to me. There was nothing outwardly different other than me. It wasn't outward. It was inward. Me saying, all right, God, I'm trusting you as a father. That you have answered this prayer and I'm not on the left side anymore. I'm on the right side. And that's a constant prayer. That's not a one-time thing. The tense of that verb, be filled, is, is present, which means continuous action. So continue to pray to be filled with the Spirit. It's our natural tendency is to move back towards that left side. And what I want to encourage you, and I think what Jesus' example to us is, is we want to live on that right side picture. And all you have to do is ask. If you're saying, I don't know, I don't know if I prayed to be filled, then I would say, what's stopping you from doing it again? There's no, like, it's not... It's not a test. It's not, it's not a hoop that you're jumping through. It's not qualifying you for anything. If you want to be effective in service, if you want to be effective in loving other people, then the prerequisite is to move from the left side to the right side. Left side people are going to heaven. 100%. It's not a question of your salvation. It's in a question of your effectiveness in service. Your effectiveness in ministry, if you like that word. Your ability to love and bless others well. To produce fruit. Whatever phrase you want to use, that's what's at issue here. And the only th- and moving from the left side to the right side, it's just, a, it's just asking. That's all. God, fill me with your spirit. Was that five words? That's it. Regularly. Not because he doesn't hear, but because for us, we have to constantly put ourselves under the influence of his spirit. Our tendency is to step out from under his influence and to come under the influence of our own flesh, to come under the influence of the world in some ways. And so I constantly have to say, all right, fill me with your spirit, which in my mind, it's not like I'm getting more of him. I'm just stepping back and saying, I want to live my thoughts, words, and actions under the influence of your spirit more and more. That's what I'm praying, and that's my encouragement to you moving forward. We're going to close with communion. My favorite communion passage is Psalm 103. Let me read you the first couple of verses. This is David talking. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then David lists these benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. We just saw that. Jesus has the authority to forgive you of your sins. If you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, and you're living under the guilt and the weight of your own sinfulness. You can be set free from that today. He has the authority to forgive you of your sins. If you'll let him, all you have to do is ask. You confess your sins and say, Jesus, forgive me, and he will. That's it. Simple. He heals all of your diseases. This is tricky for us. All, every time. Ultimately, the answer is yes. We want to believe him to work in our bodies today. We'll have ministry teams here up in the corner. If you have a physical ailment, we want you to come forward, and they're going, to make, they're going to anoint you. They're going to make a little cross on the outside of your hand with oil. It's not magic oil. It was bought at the store. 
the little Christians, it has a Christian label on it instead of Crisco. That's it. They're going to make an X, a little cross on you, because James 5 says, if, you, if you're sick, let the elders of the church pray, anoint you with oil and pray for you. And so that's all they're going to do. They're just following James 5, and they're going to believe that God will work in your body. He redeems your life from the pit. If you feel like that today, if you feel like you're in the pit, one of the benefits of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is he rescues you from that. I think particularly those of you who wrestle with depression, and you would say, now is a bad stretch for me. It's dark where I live. Let us pray with you that God will pull you out of that pit. It doesn't make you a weak Christian that you wrestle with depression. Allow us to pray with you about that. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Some of you are weak this morning. You're just weary. You're worn out. It's only February. And you're going, when is Christmas break? You're so tired already. Let us pray with you that God would renew your strength. Picture yourself if you can. It's easy for us to see ourselves as the friend. Hard for us to see ourselves as the paralytic. But if you would this morning, if one of those things resonates with you, please allow us to pray with you. There's nothing special about the people up here who pray. They're just friends who are saying, this morning, give me the privilege of getting you in front of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the life and the death and the resurrection of your son. We thank you for all of the benefits that are available to us because of his sacrifice on our behalf. And we want to receive those things. We don't want to leave anything on the table. So, God, I want to pray now for any who have uh, their sin in their life that's keeping them from you. Would you bring conviction around that area right now? Something popped into your head. You just confess that in your heart. God, I confess that I fill in the blank. Maybe something that you didn't do that you should have. Then if you're willing, God, I repent of that. I recognize that was wrong and I'm going to walk in a new direction. If you did that, then you need to know according to 1 John 1, 9, your sins are forgiven. You're clean, 100%. No stain, no wrinkle, no blemish. Don't allow that to keep you from engaging with him. God, I want to pray for those who are sick. I want to pray particularly for those who, like that leper, say, I know you can, I just don't know if you will. God, would you this morning minister into their lives? I pray, God, even for the courage that it takes for someone in that spot to come forward. God, would you give them the courage to do that and to say, I know he can, I just don't know if he will. Because he hasn't yet. God, I want to pray for those particularly who wrestle with depression. Would you rescue them from the pit today? And would you break the hold that that condition has on them? God, for those who are weary, would you renew their strength this morning? I want to pray for anyone when they look at that picture and says, I'm on the left side. I know the Holy Spirit lives within me, but there's no... There's no power in my life. I'm not talking about emotions. I'm not talking about physical expressions. I'm just talking about fruit. And you would say there's not a whole lot of fruit. Maybe there was at one point, but it's been a while. God, I want to pray for those folks that they would pray very simply five words. Fill me with your spirit. 
that they would come more and more under the influence of your spirit. That they would move from the left side of that picture to the right side this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.